Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Passover Prep Learning Series. We didn't quite finish last week some of the stuff that I wanted to do, and so I want to do that. So if you could download, I actually have an improved text. It is improved over last week. So if you save things in your files, this is an improved and better version. And also, by the way, it is also posted on the Betham uh, uh, webpage button where you go to podcasts. Apparently, that also has a link to it if you're on the fly and are on a device where you can't download or whatever. So, um, Rabbi Schatz, could you share it? Yeah, I'm going to share it. I'm also going to make a link so that um, I can put it Both. in the chat. Yeah. So first of all, I want to show you why it's improved. Okay. And then um, and then we'll go up to where I want to go up to. So if you can scroll up a little bit there, Rabbi, thank you. You'll see it sit down. So you'll see it's improved. Just scroll down slowly because I have tried to set, uh, I have red for what the woman says, blue for what the guy says, very old fashioned. Okay. And that's to help you sort out the text. Plus I've left a little space between like each poem lit and the next. So you could try to separate them out. The thing I haven't done is um, have it written as poems with like poetic lines. Sorry, I didn't uh, keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. So if you want to, on your own time at home, look back after the, over the two chapters that we read and sort of see clearly in red and blue, um, what's the guy, what's the girl. I actually have a printed Israeli book, which has this in color, but I was unable to find anything online that has what the, actually there is an English one, which is two different fonts. It's not two different colors. One of the English commentaries, but I think it's very helpful. Okay, Rebecca Schatz, Rabbi Schatz, could you please now go to scroll to page, oh wait, where am I? Sorry, I want to be in the right week. That's okay. We did this. No, no, no. That's all right. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Page eight. Past page seven. Okay. Modern Bible scholars look at Shirashirim. This is the part I want to, because we said last week we're looking through the lens of Pshat. Even though we're going to look at the Pshat every week, we're going to try to understand the text. Okay. And I will remind you, put questions in the shot, in the chat, and I will let Rabbi Schatz, who has the word chat in the, it's like, what's the longest word in the English language? smiles because it has a mile between the s and the other s what's the biggest chat in the english language i don't know shots because it has uh, a chat in between the s and the z so put questions comments in the chat and rabbi shots will screen them okay so because we're last week i want to talk about the lens of shot which we didn't really get to um the link is in the chat uh rabbi shots is the link in the chat she's going to put it there she's going to put it there yeah, I just have to stop sharing my screen to put Give it. Give her a moment. Yeah. yeah let's, a let's pause. Hmm. I'm always in a rush because there's so much to do, but let's put I it can... in the chat and then come back to the screen sharing. Everyone take a breath. <laughs> Give me a good chance if anybody had any questions from last week, and then I can. Burning questions. Burning questions, yes. Okay. But I'll talk before we get to screen sharing. Okay. okay. So. The question, the, the big shot question, and shot again means um, the simplest, or I'm going to make up a sentence that's not totally made up. The original meaning 
of the text in its original context, which means either is written by Solomon in 950 BCE or the latest date given by secular Bible scholars, 300s BCE, the secular, the Hellenistic era, or collected at some point later of many different poems and poem fragments and someone decided to put them in together. However, you want one understands this process of composition. What is the shot of Shira Shirim? What is its cultural setting? So you say, well, it's a collection of love poems. So I would respond to you, well, what does that mean? Is it a book that people are supposed to read? Are these poems that were recited? Are they songs? What was the occasion on which they would be read or used? So critical Bible scholars from Germany 100 years ago have a concept called the Sitzimleben. Sitzimleben means the life setting. Like what's the original life setting of a biblical passage? So if you if we ask, for example, what's the life setting of a psalm? Oh, maybe it was recited by someone in the temple when they gave thanks and brought their sacrifice after being healed from healed from illness. What's the life setting of a long ago story about an ancestor, uh, Avram Yitzhak or Yaakov, who did something in the land of Canaan and then founded a sanctuary there and built a, an altar and made a, a sacrifice? Maybe that was the story that they told at that sanctuary when people would come to the sanctuary. What's the life setting of some law that explains exactly how you cut up a sacrifice? Maybe that was an instruction manual for Kohanim so they would learn how to cut up a particular sacrifice and offer it, right? So scholars always said, like, what's the life setting originally of a particular text? Was it written? Was it oral? Who was it for? When was it, when was it used? And we could say the same thing about Shir HaShirim. Um, Rabbi Schatz, can, are we able to go back to screen sharing? Mm-hmm. So if you say, well, it's just love poetry, okay, um, which I think avoids the question. I'm going to show you how that avoids the question. So here is some love poetry in English. You can all shout out the answer. Source one, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou, out more, thou art more lovely and more temperate. Where's that from? It's the opening line of a, come on, English majors. Ooh, it's a, wow. It's a sonnet. By Shakespeare. It's an opening yes, it's, line. It's, of it's one of the song. sonnets, right? Great. Shakespeare sonnets. Next one. Rabbi Schatz, please scroll down. <clears throat> this one you'll know I because it was just the 50th anniversary. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start to tremble in whenever you're around. It is a line by... Carol King. So it's like a, pop, it's a popular song. Especially today, I hope you feel how much I love you and how grateful I am to have you in my life. Can anyone make a guess what that is from? What does it sound like? It's from a greeting card. Correct. And then we have, it's not exactly a poem. The next one, you had me at hello, which I just happened. I was like looking online for movie love lines. And that is a line from a movie from Jerry Maguire. Right. So we could collect all those together. And we could say, well, that's American English love poetry. It's just a collection of love poetry, right? But because we are from this culture, we are able to parse out the nuance of all of these. We'd say like, no, the first one is like high class poetry. It's Shakespeare. You'd learn it in a college class. 
And then uh, there's one thing that's popular song poetry. By the way, I could give you rap love poetry and pop love poetry, and you would be able to distinguish what's rap and what's pop. I could give you um, one of those greeting cards, one of those sexy greeting cards for Valentine's Day of like couples who've just gotten together. And I could give you a greeting card of someone to their daughter or grandmother. And I could give you a greeting card that's one of those jokey ones of people who have been married on Valentine's Day or anniversaries for many years where it has a ridiculous poem about, I may not always take out the trash, da 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 right? So, um, so and because and we are from this culture, those things come from our culture, we would be able to immediately identify the register, the level, the setting of all of those. So the problem is that we are not of the culture of Shirashirim. So we are not of the culture of two and a half or three millennia ago. So we are not easily able to identify who might have said these, read these, uttered these. In what context does it make the most sense? Does everyone get the question? Not if you get the question. So we could collect all these English things together and you could read it two and a half millennia from now when our culture is dead. And people would say, well, it was just American love poetry. But we who are immersed in our culture know, no, you can't just love all the, lump all those things together. They're very different from each other. And we're able to identify the cultural setting of all of them. So the question is, what might the cultural setting originally of Shir Hashirim have been? And modern Bible scholars have all kinds of speculations about it. Okay, you can scroll down a little bit. So in Israeli Bible commentary, Zakovich, you know, brings these, but there are lots of other commentaries that cite the same things. And these are all different sort of hypotheses by modern Bible scholars about like what was the original, what might the original setting of these poems have been. Some scholars think that there were temple rituals in Israelite, but I will call it pagan religion influenced temples um, where there were fertility rituals, as we know there were in Canaan, um, and that these poems were read ritually as part of that ritual. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, some scholars who believe that these poems are very late in the Hellenistic era say this is like a staged drama. We have the man, we have the woman, we have the Greek chorus of Benot Yerushalayim, the daughters of Jerusalem, you know, and that uh, 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 ancient Israelites influenced by Greek drama created something like that. It was like a love drama. Um, some scholars say they were wedding songs. Um, there was one particular guy, I don't remember his name, he was a either British or German consul in Syria a hundred years ago. I don't remember um, who went to Bedouin weddings and he observed that at Bedouin weddings, the women sung love songs like lovey dovey songs about the couple. And he said, ah, Shira Shirim is just like these. These were actually, these are fragments of songs that were sung at weddings actually in ancient times. Um, um, other scholars have talked about how um, many traditional cultures have women's songs. Um, women sing when they're spinning together, they 
sing when they're grinding grain together, when they're doing classic um, uh, old-fashioned society women's work, okay? They had lullaby songs that mothers taught their daughters, and there were love songs, and these were women's love songs that women might just sort of, you know, sing in their women's circles. So there are all kinds of theories about the original setting of Shir Hashirim culturally um, that try to go beyond kind of the superficial label of, well, it's just a collection of love, love songs. Because again, a Bible scholar says a collection of love songs from what, for who, for what purpose. Um, so I'm going to give you two analogs from Tashir Shirim from ancient Near Eastern literature that scholars cite a lot as helping us to understand the shot. So first of all, we have, you know, I mean, what are the two great cultures on either side of Eretz Yisrael? We have Mesopotamian and we have Egyptian. So in Mesopotamian, there is love song literature. For example, man of heart, beloved man, your lure is a sweet thing, as sweet as honey. You have captivated me. Of my own free will, I shall come to you. Lad, let me flee with you into the bedroom. Man, let me do the sweetest things to you. My precious sweet, let me bring you honey. Well, that sounds a little bit Shir Hashirim-ish, right? Here's another one. Uh, scroll down a bit, Rabbi Shantz, please. Oh my, oh, my one, fair of locks. Locks being what I don't have anymore. Fair of locks. Sweet one. Tree well-grown like a date palm, man who for your locks are acclaimed in the assembly, my brother of handsome visage who kisses our garment bosoms, my one with beard mottled like a slab of lapis lazuli, which is a precious blue stone. You are my turban pin, my gold I wear. Okay, that's a little Shir Hashirim-ish. So um, as far as I know from the stuff that I read, um, all of the Mesopotamian love poetry that we have. And these are Sumerian from 2000 BCE, but there are other ones that are collected. Um, all of them are actually from a ritual context. In the ritual context, it was the king who was a male who mated with, I'm gonna put it in air quotes, I guess, mated with the female goddess for fertility purposes. And the person representing the female goddess was probably a priestess in the temple. So scholars believe there were these ancient mating rituals where the king had sex with someone representing the goddess. The king was seen as a god. He had to have sex with the goddess. And the purpose of this was to ensure the continuing fertility of the land, meaning it's always a ritualized setting of high caste people, which makes it very different than Shir Hashirim because Shir Hashirim is about a shepherd and a shepherdess running around outside together in the fields. So on the one hand, we do have Solomon, okay? Um, on the other hand, we certainly don't have a goddess and most of Shir Hashirim does not really include Solomon. So some scholars look at the Mesopotamian stuff and say Shir Hashirim is like that, but it doesn't really fit. Other scholars look at there is, in fact, secular Egyptian love poetry. Um, I have departed from my brother. Now when I think of your love, my heart stands still within me. When I behold sweet cakes, they seem like salt. 
pomegranate wine once sweet in my mouth. It is now like the gall of birds. The scent of your nose alone is what revives my heart. Or if only my sister were mine every day, like the greenery of a wreath, the lapis lazuli plants and the mandrakes have come forth. All the blossoms are flourishing in the meadow. That sounds pretty Shir Hashirim-ish, does it not? One more. Scroll down a bit. One alone. By the way, Achat Hiyonati Tamati in Shir Hashirim. The only one is my beloved dove. In Egyptian, we have one alone is my sister, having no peer, more gracious than all other women, shining, precious, white of skin, lovely of eyes when gazing, long of neck, white of breast, her hair true lapis lazuli, her arms surpass gold, her fingers are like lotuses. She has captured my heart in her embrace. She makes the heads of all the men turn about when seeing her. My brother roils my heart with his voice, making me take ill. Though he is among the neighbors of my mother's house, I cannot go to him. Oh, brother, I am decreed for you. Come to me that I may see your beauty. Now, that sounds pretty Shir Hashirim-ish. So, in fact, in Egyptian poetry, we do have what seems to be secular love poetry about common people. There's a lot about, as there is in Shir Hashirim, longing. There's a lot of nature. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of comparing body parts to things. There's the reference to the lovers as my brother, my sister, if only I could bring you to my house. And so lots of scholars look at, lots of Bible scholars look at Egyptian love poetry as kind of um, the closest ancient Near East analog for Shir Hashirim. And, and, and we'll say that Shir Hashirim is written kind of um, within uh, a, a larger cultural context that the Israelites shared with every with others. Um, sister, uh, Matthew asked, what sister? You know, sister is a term of endearment, right? So I'm not going to get into technical things about sister wife, but it's a term of endearment. Um, um, what do we sometimes call our women in American slang, or our men for that matter? Baby. Hey, baby. What is a baby? A baby is an infant. Do I think my my wife is like an infant? No, it's sort of a family, a term of family intimacy endearment. Okay, it's like calling the man Dode, which means beloved kinsman. Okay, okay, let's move on. 20 minutes into it, let's move on to week two. Here we go. Uh, Rebecca Schatz, if you could put on. Um, okay, so. Here are things that I might have said at the beginning, but I'm going to say them now because it was like, oh, on further reflection, here are some questions to keep in mind. In general, by the way, I don't have any answers. I have lots of questions. Okay, so questions to keep in mind as we go through Shira Shirim. Does Shira Shirim have a plot or a story? There are some scholars and commentators who try to fit it into a plot. So, for example, Solomon loved a young woman, but she lived a shepherd. Or here's another one that some readers say. Solomon loved one particular woman in his harem and had a special relationship with her. We know that Solomon had, according to the Bible, a thousand wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. He loved many women. So is there a plot or is Shirashirim a collection of poems or fragments and our attempt to make it into a story is misguided? Or is there something, something in between? 
Uh, is this a collection of poems and fragments that someone has arranged to have something like a plot? Another point, something to think about, in terms of love poetry, much of this is about, not about the fulfillment of love, but it is the longing or yearning aspect of love. Missed connections, which we'll read about today, right? I looked for him, but he was gone. Let's plan to meet. Let's run away together. They are together, but fleetingly. Where can I find you? We read last week, and I don't want to wander around among all the other shepherds looking for you. So if this is poetry about love, it is about seeking, longing, yearning, maybe briefly connecting. Um, I'll just let that thought hang there, right? As opposed to we met, we fell in love, they lived together happily ever after the end. Okay, so it's not like that. Um, there are passages where we'll say, is this real? Is this actually happening? Is this in the person's imagination? Is it a dream? We'll read today, Al Mishkavi Balelot, on my bed at night. Is this, and she hears the lover knocking. Is the lover really knocking? Is she imagine? And then she gets up, she goes to the door, he's gone. Did she imagine it? She goes out to the city. She's wandering and looking for him. She's beaten by the watchman, right, for wandering around at night. Is that really happening? Is it a dream? So just want to let give you more questions. Um, we read about sort of the tension between the city and the country. The city is constricted. There are people looking. There are watchmen. There's the parents' homes and the parents' rules. There's, I call it girlfriends, meaning Benot Yerushalayim, the, the female chorus. There are brothers who might have something to say about what the woman can do and can't do. Rules, propriety, versus that's contrasted with the countryside. The countryside, which connotes this is where they're, uh, it's free. It's the world of nature. It's open. Ironically, that's more private. Okay, we would think in the, in our modern society, in the bedroom is more private, right? We say to people, get a room, right? Okay, um, whereas what's the most private place they can think of? Some natural bower out in the fields where no one can see them. That's where they can have their privacy. So we have city consciousness, country consciousness. Also contrast between the royal household, Solomon, we'll read about that today, luxury, Pageantry, pageantry might be getting going a little too far, but you know the the pomp of the court versus the simplicity and the intimacy of the couple. So we'll read about Solomon's litter, which is which is which is you know lined with you imagine what's it lined with? You know I don't know velvet or silk or something like that. Versus the couple just wants to be lying on the green stuff of the ground. Um, pay attention throughout Shira Shirim to the emphasis on physicality and sensuality, the senses, bodies, body part, touch, taste, scent. There's a lot of gazing and looking, flowers, um, spices, perfume, spices means perfumes, um, trees. Okay. So, um, Shirashirim, as opposed to 
talking about love and love is all interior and it's feelings in your heart. Okay. Um, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of physicality and sensoriness that's used to try to evoke um, and describe aspects of love. We have, we, I said this about city versus country, but I just want to pause on it for a moment. Also nature, nature as setting and metaphor. We can rendezvous in nature and nature is beautiful and nature symbolizes our love because we read about spring, budding, it's awakening, right? So this is not like summer, it's hot, we're sweaty, right? Fall, the leaves are so pretty, they're on the ground, it means everything is dying. No, it's all connected to spring because spring is the time of, of growth and their, their love is experienced as, as a kind of budding and awakening, whether that's actual sexual awakening or just love conscious awakening. And again, of course, that's another connection, as we said last week, of Shira Shirim to spring, right? So we have here two connections to Pesach, both because Pesach is the um, celebration of spring and because Pesach is the celebration of the bud of our relationship, our intimacy with Hashem. And we have the, the tension, the opposition between, between the couple and society. Society has mothers and brothers and friends. Um, whereas the couple, I was thinking of that old song, you know, I think we're alone now. Children behave, you know, right? So it's like this young couple, right? And they just want to get away from everyone, okay? So it can be just the two of them. And of course, you know, anyone who's, who's, who's been young and in love, like all these things, you know, resonate. Okay, scroll down. I had this last week. It's just a refresher. Wait, wait, wait. Um, terms, right? The man calls the woman darling. It's a translation of raya. She calls him dode, beloved, which really means lover. And ahava means love the way we use it in English, whereas dodim means lovin, L-O-V-I-N apostrophe, as in blues songs. Okay, physical contact. Here we go. Chapter three. Al Nishkavi Balelot. In my bed at night, I sought the one I love. Now, now hold on. I just want to point out again the poetic imagery, right? If you're looking for someone, you can't be lying in your bed. Okay, so what does that mean? While lying in bed, I decided to get up and seek the one I love, or while lying in bed at night, I am fantasizing about the one that I love. Okay, I don't know. Or is it a dream? I sought him, but found him not. I must rise and roam the town through the streets and through the squares. I must seek the one I love. I sought him, but found him not. I met the watchman who patrolled the town. Have you seen the one I love? Can you imagine this, by the way? How old is the woman in Shirashirim? Any idea? Shout it out. What do you think? I don't know. Make it up. 18. 18. Any other guesses? 16. 16. All right, make it a little more legit. I don't know, 20. Okay, so could you imagine that she's out actually, just think of what the town, just think of like the old city of Jerusalem as it is today, just imagine that. So, which is not where this took place, right? Because the old city of Jerusalem is actually the new city. But imagine you've been in the old city of Jerusalem, like you're wandering around saying to the police, have you seen my lover? Okay, so 
Again, this is raised like, is it imagination? Is it fantasy? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one I love. I held him fast and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of her who conceived me, Horati, which again, uh, I've read some scholars who say, you know, the mother is a positive, not mentioned a lot here, but is a positive image of sexuality, right? The mother who conceived me, saying the woman, implies that I will then follow in her ways and conceive with my lover, okay? Another poem led. I adjure you, it means I make you swear. It's fancy English. Um, swear to me, essentially, O, ma o maidens of Jerusalem, by gazelles or by hinds of the field, do not wake or rouse love until it please. I never know what this sentence means. It's the second time we've seen it. It appears three times in Shira Shirim, right? Does this mean don't tell him that I like him? Does it mean, I mean, obviously the sense of it is love has to happen only when it's ready and when it's ripe. But what is it that the Benot Yerushalayim might do that might mess things up. Anyone have a, let's have a just quick two or three, like one sentence. What is she worried about? Anyone? She's always puzzled me. Matt? I, I think she's telling them to play hard to get. Don't give it up too easy. Make them pursue you. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Joanna? She's, um, you know, she's finding her, own, you know, it's that scene from Fiddler on the Roof. She's finding her own love match, you know, and there's a shidduch going for her that she's... Let us go at our own pace. Let me pick my own guy and go at my own pace. Okay. Mm -hmm. Good. All right. We'll let it hang here. Okay. And then we have, it's in black because it's, it's not clear who says this. Maybe it's a narrator. Maybe it's... The Benot Yerushalayim, we don't know. Who is she that comes up from the desert like columns of smoke in clouds of myrrh and frankincense of all the powders of the merchant? The powders means the, the spices or perfumes of the merchant. That's one fragment. The implication, of course, being it's the woman. Okay. But, but then here's a, something else. There is Solomon's couch encircled by 60 warriors of the warriors of Israel, all of them trained in warfare, skilled in battle, each with sword on thigh because of terror by night. So there's King Solomon on his couch surrounded by the secret service. King Solomon made him a palanquin, which is a fancy English word for a litter. It's like that thing that they carry kings on, you know, it ta takes people to carry the, the sedan chair. Maybe it means that, or maybe it means, maybe the Hebrew word apirion means pavilion. We'll come to that later. Uh, Rabbi Shot, scroll down, please. So King Solomon made him a pavilion or a litter of wood from Lebanon, which is fancy and expensive. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple wool. Within it was decked with love by the maidens of Jerusalem. And what does that mean? Does that mean because he had loved so many maidens in there? All right, we don't know. O maidens of Zion, go forth and gaze upon King Solomon wearing the crown that his mother gave him on his wedding day, on his day of bliss. So this is what I meant by the pageantry. So here we have King Solomon on his litter or in his pavilion, which is lavish and beautiful. So we have sort of a love poem about that. Again, which I just want to point out is totally different than two young people 
who are running around in the field saying, I think we're alone now. So I, I just want you to see kind of the um, uh, tension, disjunctiveness, whatever you want to call it, that, that shows us clearly that we have here not really a narrative poem, but we have pieces of different things that are put together. Onwards to chapter four. The man speaks, ah, you are fair, my darling, you are fair. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming, streaming down Mount Gilead. Goats are usually black or dark, okay? Your teeth are like a flock of ewes climbing up from the washing pool. All of them bear twins and not one loses her young. So what is the, oh, you're sending the link now. Sorry. <clears throat> Rabbi Schatz just sent the link to what we're reading. Okay. No one stopped you. No one said, where's the link? Okay. So what does that mean? The ewes are like twins when he's talking about her teeth. She has what we refer to as good teeth, right? They're all matching. She's not a snaggle tooth. Okay. Yeah. Come on. Do you, I sometimes have this experience. I'm watching like a movie and I see some, you know, beautiful actress and they'll smile. I'll think like, oh, she has good teeth, right? They're all matching. They're all lined up, right? Not like, you know, lots of people who, you know, pre-modern didn't get the orthodontic work, et cetera. So your teeth are perfect. Your lips are like a crimson thread. Your mouth is lovely. By the way, for Hebrew readers, mouth, the word for mouth here is midbar, which you might think means desert, but of course it doesn't. And why is midbar mean mouth? Because that's the part of you that is the midaber that does the talking. Okay. If you don't follow the Hebrew, just ignore what I said. Your brow behind your veil, by the way, it's unclear if that's really brow or temple or cheek. If you read different English translations, they will give a different, um, sorry, Rabbi Schatz is saying that the first link she shared in the chat is what we're doing now, and she'll share it again. It says week two on it, chapter three and four. Okay, so he's got the hair and the teeth and the lips, which would suggest that it's really not brow. That would really suggest it's kind of, we're around the cheek by now. We're, we're heading, we're starting north and we're heading south, right? Your neck is like a Tower of David built to hold weapons, hung with a thousand shields, all the quivers of warriors. Presumably this is like the necklace she wears, which reminds him of, of warrior um, shields hung on uh, the Tower of David. Um, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle browsing among the lily. Could you scroll down, please, Rabbi Shots? When the day blows gently and the shadows flee, I will betake me to the Mount of Myrrh, to the hill of frankincense, which might mean we're heading south towards the midsection of the woman. And that this is his euphemism, right? For her middle regions. Every part of you is fair, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Remember I said last week, the woman is much more, the woman talks about what he looks like and also about um, feelings. The guy is kind of more like a typical guy. He's sort of generally more physical and concrete. Not all the time. Can we scroll down? So we have the man talking, but still um, this seems to be a different poem or he's continuing. He has finished with his description of her beauty. 
From Lebanon, come with me. From Lebanon, my bride, with me. Trip down from Amanaz Peak, from the peak of Sneer and Hermon. All these are mountains in the north of the country, north of Israel. From the dens of lions, from the hills of leopards. There were lions and, and mountain cats in Eretz Israel in ancient times before they were hunted to extinction. You have captured my heart, my own, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes. I means you, you had me at hello. I took one look at you and I fell in love with one coil of your neck, necklace. How sweet is your love, my own, my bride. How much more delightful your love than wine, your ointments more fragrant than any spice. Sweetness drops from your lips, O oh bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the scent of your robes is like the scent of Lebanon. Rabbi Schatz, you got to scroll down for us, please. So then we have another poemlet, still by the guy. A garden locked is my own, my bride. A fountain locked, a sealed up spring. It's a reference to her chastity. And in Hebrew, we have a pun. It's gan na'ul and gal na'ul. A locked garden, a locked fountain. Your limbs are an orchard of pomegranates and of all luscious fruits of henna and nard, nard and saffron, fragrant reed and cinnamon, with all aromatic woods, myrrh and aloes, all the choice perfumes. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, a rill of Lebanon. Rill is apparently a fancy English word, which is like a trickle of a stream, right? So she's like trees, she's like pomegranate, she's like spices, she's like a stream. So all of these images um, co coming together of what she's like. The woman now we says, awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon my garden that its perfume may spread. Let my beloved come to his garden and enjoy its luscious fruits, which sounds sort of like a pretty open invitation to my ears which is why I've added one more verse, the first verse of um, chapter five. Remember the chapters and verses were created by Christians in the Middle Ages. They're not original to the Jews. So our divisions don't always correspond. I have put a dash, dash, dash in English, where in Hebrew, there's a samach. Samach means in the scroll, there's a break here, meaning the Jewish scroll writers had the tradition of here's where there's a pause. In other words, they thought that chapter five, verse one belonged with the verse before it. And then there was a pause. And you'll see why I'm going to read 16 again, verse 16. Awake, O north wind, come out south wind, blow upon my garden that its perfume may spread. Let my beloved come to his garden and enjoy its luscious fruits, says the woman. The man responds, I have come to my garden, my own, my bride. I have plucked my myrrh and spice eaten my honey and honeycomb, drunk my wine and my milk. And then we have a third party statement, part of this same verse one, chapter five, verse one, eat lovers and drink, drink deep of love. Or I'm going to translate that sentence differently. Eat, O oh lovers, drink and get drunk on lovin'. If there is sexual consummation of the relationship between the man and the woman in Shir Hashirim, this is where most scholars think it is. 
right? Um, it's not at the end of the book. The end of the book ends with longing, and this will raise questions that we'll talk about in week four. Why is there consummation? Con why might there be consummation in the middle and longing at the end? Okay, just let that question marinate. So I'm not saying it is consummation. I'm just saying that is the suggestion of that. Okay, let's just pause because because in, in a moment we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna ruin it. Okay, when we when we do midrash. Okay, so um, I just want to pause just to to marinate in kind of the beauty of um, some of the poetry. It's it's alive, it's sensuous, it appeals to one's imagination. Um, I don't know if you find it sexy. I find it pretty sexy. And um, it's beautiful. So I want to say. Um, now we talked about, we're going to look at Jerusalem through different interpretive frames. So we looked at upshot frame, which is, um, you know, ancient Near East kind of thing. Okay. And now we're going to encounter the classical Jewish view. So classical Jewish thinkers, Mishnah and Talmud through the Middle Ages onward, could not possibly imagine that there would be a book in the Holy Bible that is about Eros, and that's all it's about, because the Holy Bible is supposed to be about religion, God, and the Jewish people. Now, there are modern thinkers who reclaim Shir Hashirim as Eros, and we'll look at some of them in week four. By the way, I'm reworking week three and week four. So whatever I said, it's going to be, it's going to be something else. Whatever it says in the initial thing, week three and week four are going to be, they're going to be something different. <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure yet. But for classical Jewish interpreters, it can't possibly be just about sex and love between a shepherd and a shepherdess. It's got to be, I'm now going to put it in air quotes, <clears throat> religious. <clears throat> we might want to make an argument that love is a spiritual experience and that that's religious also. That's not what most of our traditional Jewish forebears thought in interpreting Shira Shireen. They saw Shira Shireen <clears throat> as an allegory about God and the Jewish people. The lover, the male lover is God, the woman is the Jewish people, and they have all sorts of allegorical interpretations of this means this and that means that, the story is a story in code using the story of love between a man and a woman, meaning a, a, a familiar theme to any human reader in any generation, using those images to tell the story of God and the Jewish people. Okay. And sometimes this is inspired and sometimes it feels silly. That's my value judgment. You'll see what I mean by that. Okay, let's start with Mishnah. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel said there were no days as joyous for the Jewish people as the 15th of Av and as Yom Kippur, by which he means Yom Kippur afternoon, as on those two days, the daughters of Jerusalem would go out in white clothes, barred from one another so as not to embarrass one who did not have her own white garments, and the daughters of Jerusalem would go out and dance in the vineyards. And what would they say? Young man, lift up your eyes and see what you choose for yourself. For wife, they'd go out dancing, they'd be on display. They'd say, don't set your eyes toward beauty, but set your eyes towards a good family. 
And they probably didn't quote Proverbs. That's probably the Mishnah quoting Proverbs. Why did they say this? And skip down, right? So we're going to skip this from Proverbs. Similarly, it says, go forth, daughters of Zion, and gaze upon King Solomon upon the crown which is, with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart, which just we just read about 10 minutes ago, right? On the day of his wedding, this means the giving of the Torah. And on the day of the gladdening of his heart, this means the rebuilding of the temple. May it be rebuilt speedily in our days. Amen. Right? It ends that way because this is the final Mishnah of the Tractate Tanit. So it ends on the may it be rebuilt speedily. Speedily. So what is wedding day? What does day of joy mean? Does it mean wedding? Does it mean day of joy? No, it does not. It means Sinai and it means um, Messiah time. Okay? So this is allegory, right? This is a code. It means, it doesn't mean that. It means this. That goes back to the Mishnah. Okay? In the Talmud, by the way, and I, there, there are other passages I could have picked from the Talmud. All mentions of the name Solomon that are stated in the Song of Songs are not references to King Solomon, says the Gemara. Rather, they are sacred. Okay, what that means is this is a section of the Talmud where it says which words in the Bible refer to God. So, for example, Adonai, written yud Hey and then vav Hey, always refers to God. But if it's written Aleph, Dalid, Nun, Yud, right, which could mean my masters, like Abraham, when the three angels says to them, Adonai, please don't pass me by, right? He's, he's probably speaking respectfully, saying, gentlemen, please don't pass me by. Come and stay for a meal. Um, the word Elohim usually means God, but sometimes it means divine with a lowercase d, just like we would say that chocolate cake was divine. We don't mean it comes from God. So when we say, when in the book of Jonah, which we read on Yom Kippur afternoon, it says Ninveh was an ear Elohim. It probably doesn't mean a godly city. It probably means a huge city. What we would say in English, ungodly, (laughs) ungodly, huge city. Okay. And it's important for the scribe when the scribe is writing a Torah scroll to have the proper intent. So the scribe, when they're writing a name, which is God's name, they need to have the, the intent that I am writing God's name. So the Talmud talks about which things are Kodesh and which are Chol. So sometimes Aleph, Dalid, Nun, Yud refers to God. And the scribe has to has the intention that the scribe is writing God's name. And sometimes Aleph, Dalid, Nun, Yud, or Elohim is not about God. It's like divine with a lowercase d, like when we say that chocolate cake was divine. And the scribe does not need to have the kavanah or the intention that they're writing Hashem's name. Everyone follow that distinction? So it is saying every time it says Shlomo in Shir Hashirim, it is Kodesh, meaning this is God, the scribe needs to have the intent that they are writing God's name, meaning Shlomo in Shirashirim is not King Solomon. Shlomo is God, except for two times, it says. And sorry, I have some, 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 once again, some formatting problems in the Hebrew. Um, right? So, except for these two places. And why? Does Shlomo mean God? Because Shlomo means Shehashalom Shalom, the one 
who who is bracket the master of peace that refers to God. So the Talmud says when Shirashirim says Shlomo, it doesn't mean King Solomon. It refers to God. So if you scroll down a bit, Rabbi Schatz, if we remember Rabbi Rabbi Akiva last week, when he defends when there's this argument about is Shir Hashirim um, sacred literature or not? Should it be part of the canon or not? And they're debating about Shir Hashirim and about Ecclesiastes. And, and Rabbi Akiva says, oh, no, 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 no. All the scriptures are holy, but Song of Songs is the holy of holies. Is Rabbi Akiva, who lived in Mishnaic, Tanaitic times, saying that because he is making us some statement that we moderns would love that he made that no, this story about love between a man and a woman, this is the highest level of holiness. Or is Rabbi Akiva saying this is an allegory about God's love for the Jewish people or the love affair between Hashem and B'nai Israel, And that is why it is the most holy of literature. Okay. So much Midrashic material is con- c- contained in a Midrash called Shir HaShirim Rabbah. By the way, the first Midrash, by the way, if you have a set of Midrash Rabbah, like Breshit Rabbah and Exodus Rabbah and Leviticus Rabbah, which you can buy a set, all of those Midrashim were written in different times and places. And some bookseller, manuscript writer, collected them all together and called it the Midrash Rabbah. Um, and the name probably comes from, because Rabbah means big. So the first of these was Breshit Rabbah. And Breshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah, is much longer than Genesis, the book in the Bible. So probably one was called Breshit, and this was called Breshit Rabbah. Big Genesis, because the Midrash was much, much, much larger, I mean, in terms of space and words, than um, than the book of Breshit. And there was a Midrash written a few hundred years later about Shir Hashirim, which came to be called Shir Hashirim Hashirim Rabbah, although that's probably not what the author called it. Okay, 600-ish from Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so in Shir Hashirim Rabbah, and we're going to zip through these, and I might not read through all the texts. You can read through them at home. Basically, we have a whole series of about how all these things in Shir Hashirim are really, I'm going to say, just again, in air quotes, just coded references to the history of the relationship with God and Israel. Where do we start with in chapter three? Al mishkavi balelot, in my bed at nighttime, literally in my bed during the nights, said Rabbi Abba Barkahana. What is the meaning upon my bed at nights? It means on my sick bed. And then he, he quotes a reference from Exodus, which says if one person hits another and that second person doesn't die, but takes to his bed, meaning he's in the hospital or, you know, he's in his sick bed because he's wounded, right? So we have this nice image of the woman lying in bed at night, fantasizing, sorry, bed means on my sick bed. What are the nights? Said Rabbi Levi, the Jewish people said to the Holy Blessing One, Master of the Universe, in the past, you gave me some light between one night and the next, between the night of Egypt and the night of Babylon, between the night of Babylon and the night of Persia, between the night of Persia and the night of Greece, between the night of Greece and the night of Rome, meaning Hashem in the past, you know what? There were times when we were vanquished by conquerors, but then you'd give us a little breathing space 
for a few hundred years or a few decades. Okay. But now that I have, what is, why, what is, why am I on my bed? I have slept through Torah and mitzvot, meaning now that I, the Jewish people, am sinning, my nights come one after another on my bed at night. So on my bed at night, means I am on my sick bed. I have slept through doing Torah and mitzvot. And now we have one subjugation or punishment after another. It's not like we had Egypt and we left Egypt and then 700 years later, we were conquered by Babylonia, but at least we had 700 years in between. Okay, at least we had little periods in between. Now in the diaspora today, it's all subjugation, right? So again, if that doesn't ruin the beautiful image of the woman fantasizing in bed about her lover, you're like, I don't know what will. Um, if that's what you wanted Shirashirim to be about, if you wanted it to be about Eros, right? And the Midrash clearly is not comfortable with the idea that Shirashirim is about Eros. Okay, let's scroll down. We'll see a few. Moses, Sinai, and Sanctuary. Scaredly had I passed them when I found the one I love. That is Moses. I held him fast till I brought him to my mother's house. That is Mount Sinai. To the chamber of she who conceived me. That is Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting the Mishkan. And then there's a pun in the Hebrew based on how does that, uh, how does that word mean um, tent of meeting? Okay. And again, by the way, for, for Shirashim Rabbi, I've given you only selections from chapter three and chapter four, which we just read. So it'll all be fresh in your mind. Onwards, Rabbi Schatz. Okay. Clouds of myrrh. We said myrrh, frankincense, and all the powders of the merchants, all the spices of the merchant. Clouds of myrrh. This is Abraham, our father. Just as myrrh is the best of all spices, so is Abraham the best of all the righteous. Just as myrrh embitters the hands of all who handle it. So Abraham embittered and deprived himself by means of suffering, just as myrrh gives off its scent only when burned. So Abraham's virtue became evident only in the fiery furnace, referring to the Midrash when Nimrod back in Ur had Abraham thrown into the fiery furnace because he was a monotheist and was challenging the polytheism of the established order. Frankincense, live this is Isaac. That's an easy one, right? Because frankincense is always offered on every sacrifice in the Beit HaMikdash. And how is Isaac like a sacrifice, of course, because of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. That's an easy one. Um, all the powders or perfumes of the merchant. This is Jacob, our father. And I'm not going to read through the rest of that one. You can read it at home if you want. Okay. And there's a, another learned pun in the Hebrew for the Hebrew readers in that Midrash. Onward, Rabbi Shatz. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. The sanctuary. Solomon made, I love this one. <clears throat> Solomon made a pavilion. Okay. Um, I love the ones that it's like a stretched out mashal and nimshal, a parable. It's like a parable. It's like a king who had a little daughter. Before she grew and matured, whenever he saw her in the street, he would talk to her in public, in the market, in an alleyway, in a courtyard. But once she grew and entered puberty, the technical term in uh, rabbinic Hebrew is ubat lide simanim. She developed the signs, right? And the signs in Talmudic halachic literature means signs of puberty, right? It means it means um, uh, uh, developing breasts and sex hair, okay? So once she started entering puberty, the king said, it's not respectful to my daughter for me to talk to her publicly, 
rather make for her a pavilion. And when I need to speak with her, I will speak with her in the pavilion. And then we have some verses that shows that in Egypt and at the sea and at Sinai, uh, um, God spoke to B'nai Israel directly. But what happens after Sinai? We're in the middle of this now. The parshas that we read the last few weeks and we're reading next week. God commands B'nai Israel to build a Mishkan, a tabernacle. And from then on, I only speak to them from the tabernacle. It's like a king who is now treating his teenage daughter with respect, right? You have a teenage daughter, you treat her different than your, 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 your nine-year-old daughter, okay? So the pavilion is the Mishkan. Shlomo's pavilion is the sanctuary of the wilderness. Onwards, Rabbi Shatz, we're going to finish close to on time. Okay. Um, everyone's favorite, Moses and Aaron. You're two, this is, this is what I mean by sort of silly, okay? Your two breasts, these are Moses and Aaron. By the way, there are other Midrashim. These are the two tablets of the law. And if you read like, you know, if you have an art scroll machzor for Pesach and you look at the footnotes, because we read Shir Hashim on Pesach, it'll be in the Sidur in their machzor. And you read the footnotes, it says the your two breasts. This means Moses and Aaron, right? By the way, this is the difference between, if I remember correctly from English class, the difference between symbolism and allegory. Symbolism means it's the thing, and the thing also stands for something else. It's both of those things. Allegory means, oh, no, it's not the thing. It's just a code to talk about something else, right? So it's not breasts, which reminds us of Moses and Aaron. It's breasts means Moses and Aaron, right? Because how in the world would we have a sacred book that is talking about breasts, right? Does not compute for the Midrash, for the traditional rabbinic view. Moses and Aaron, just as breasts are a woman's pride and glory, so Moses are the pride and glory of Israel. I skipped a few other things about breasts in there. I wanted to spare us all, so I have an ellipsis. There were a few other things that's like, oh, this is too much. But I did like, just as these breasts are filled with milk, so Moshe and Aaron fill Israel with Torah. Right. Torah is so they they nourish B'nai Israel by transmitting Torah, just as these breasts, everything that a woman eats, the baby eats and is nourished by. So all the Torah that Moshe learned, he transmitted to Aaron. Right. Blessed is the, the Makom who chose these two brothers who created only for transmitting Torah and for the honor of Israel. So if you're reading Shirashirim and you're thinking about breasts, said the Midrash, stop thinking about that. It's Moses and Aaron. Onwards, I think I might have had, do I have one more? Ah, we'll end with gathering of the exiles of the Messianic era. Blow north wind, blow south wind. This Midrash says normally when the north wind blows, the south wind doesn't blow. If the south wind blows, the north wind doesn't blow. What does it mean simultaneously blow the north wind and the south wind? We have a few interpretations which I'm going to skip to the last one to ra- scroll a little bit. Rabbi Huna, in the name of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, usual norm, oh, you have either north wind or, or, or either north wind or south wind, but not both. But in the coming future, God will bring the argestes to the world. It's a Greek word that I didn't have a chance to look up in my Greek dictionary. Jastro says it means brightening, brightness. I don't know. I envision it's like the big storm where all the winds are blowing all together. And what will it cause? All the winds to blow at once. 
as it says in Isaiah, north wind bring and south wind do not withhold. And this means this is about the ingathering of the exile is what Yeshayahu, the prophet, is talking about. Bring the exiles back from the north, bring the exiles back from the south, right? They're, they're coming from, 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 I don't know, they're, they're making Aliyah from Scandinavia and they're making Aliyah from Ethiopia and they're coming from America and they're coming from India, from the four corners of the earth, the ingathering of the exile. So in general, I'm going to summarize here and say, in general, the rabbinic midrashic tradition um, and um Shirashirim Rabbah most exemplifies this, but we'll see this in a lot of the medieval commentators as well. Basically, I am going to say, I don't know, are they uncomfortable? That's a judgment I'm making. I don't know. I'll just sort of say it straight out. They basically say Shirashirim is an allegory. It is a coded work, which is about the love of Hashem and the Jewish people, the history of the Jewish people, all these things, specific things in Shirashirim, are really meant to, meant, to rep, meant to represent other things. It uses the vehicle of a human love story to talk about something that is a love story between God and Israel. Um, so you can see that interpretive lens as elevating if it strikes you that way. Like, this is not just about a shepherd and a shepherdess running around. This is about the history of the Jewish people and our longing for Hashem. Or, and, and or, and slash or, um, you can see it as an interpretive lens that, I want to choose my words carefully, ignores, question mark, spoils, question mark, um, the beauty of the description of a vibrant and sensual um, human love story. Now, we'll see, and I might talk about this a little bit next week, there are some medieval commentators who say it's only allegory, and there's some medieval commentators who, who accept that it's allegory, but also want to honor the shot. They're very interested in the love story. And they'll say, why do lovers do this? Right? Um, yes, this is just like lovers really do. Okay? So there are some Jewish thinkers who, who kind of want to ignore the shot and have it be only the drosh of the allegory. And there are some Jewish thinkers who, um, I will say, respect and learn from the shot and have it be allegory. And then we'll see in week four, I'm going to try to bring in some moderns who try to reclaim the pshat from the clutches of their traditional Jewish interpretive lens that, no, this is not about lovers. Um, this is about God and the Jewish people. There are some moderns, you know, Israeli poets, artists, etc., who really want to um, reclaim um, what they see as the beauty of the original. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.